Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So a little bit of a different episode that we're going to have today. Danny and I are going to talk about the Memphis-Utah game. But I got a chance to interview the first active NBA player to ever come on the pod, Damari Carroll of the Houston Rockets. And we had a really interesting conversation. We talked some about Houston's strategy against the Bucs. He had some very interesting revelations about that. I also asked him a lot about the evolution of his game and Gave me some insights that that I hadn't heard before from him and also just to give us a different perspective on how players are are thinking about the games and how they're evolving their games. So a really interesting conversation there. And first, though, Danny and I are going to talk about the Memphis-Utah game that we did for NBA League Pass today. All right, fun day of games again today. Danny and I did the Utah versus Memphis game for the NBA cast on NBA League Pass. Another really successful broadcast. And thanks so much to all of you who asked questions with the hashtag NBA cast, who gave us really nice comments. We really appreciate that. I'm forwarding all of those on to the NBA. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to watch it yet, you can always catch up on it uh, on League Pass as well. I think they give it to you in the archive. At least they have for the past games but let's talk about this one real quick danny in memphis's first game without jaron jackson who has been shelved with that torn meniscus in his left knee you and i were both concerned about not only how memphis's offense and defense were going to be viable without jaron jackson he just his floor spacing in particular is just so important for what they do but also because the jazz are a specifically bad matchup. They have Rudy Gobert protecting the rims. That makes John Morant's drives more difficult. And in the first half, Memphis completely defied expectations for the most part until until a little flurry, at, uh, not a little flurry, a significant flurry for Utah. But I think that the overall arc of the game, all, after all was said and done, kind of fit the idea that we were thinking about. Yeah, it did. And it really was that Utah run at the end of the second half when go or second quarter when Gobert came back in and he was plus 21, had 21 points, 16 rebounds, three block shots and two steals. It was a tour de force from him. And really what we saw at the end of that second quarter was Gobert guarding Valanciunas. They had Brandon Clark and Valanciunas out there together, you know, much less spacing than they would have had with Jaron. Gobert mucking up the paint. Valanciunas kind of hanging out in the corner and Gobert not guarding him. And then Utah able to get out and transition and they finally hit some three-point shots down the end of that second quarter. That gave them a nine-point lead at halftime. Memphis actually closed and tied it briefly. I don't believe they ever took the lead in the fourth but then utah behind some crazy shooting from joe ingles was able to get back out to a comfortable lead by the end although uh taylor jenkins did not agree with the, that the lead was comfortable <laughs> yeah with with a couple of late timeouts and some fouls yeah. that were boiling ask i think we could call it yes ab- very very boiling ask and and i think another one of the stories of this game was how different grizzlies stepped up at different periods of time but they just didn't have quite enough of it dylan brooks 
I called it on the on the cast, I called it the Dylan Brooks Variety Hour. What was so stunning was Brooks scored 20 points in 17 first half minutes, but he did not do it by, you know, like we, we've talked about how he struggles so much from two. Three of five from mid-range, four of seven, sorry, five of seven overall in from two point in that first half alone. Also got to the line eight times, including this barrage of fouls right at the right elbow, which was hilarious. He got fouled in the same spot like three times in fairly quick succession. And then he really took a backseat in the rest of the game. So Brooks had 20 at halftime, finished the game with 23. And then John Morant had his time to shine in the third quarter. Yeah, Morant, he was great in the first, he was great in the third, and then he really wasn't able to get much done in the second and the fourth. And those, of course, were the quarters in which the Grizz really struggled offensively. And Morant finished a negative 16 on the game. Um, you know, they did a good job, Utah did in the second quarter, quarter of really pinning him against the sideline and some of the side pick and rolls and just especially with the limited spacing they just didn't have a lot of room to work so uh, Memphis made some adjustments in the third quarter to get him going including icing him against Donovan Mitchell and also just trying to give him a better chance to get his pick and rolls in the middle of the floor so he had more room to operate so that was a, a nice adjustment but then Utah uh, was able to adjust themselves and slow Morant down in the fourth quarter something that I and, thought oh, yeah, sorry go ahead, yeah, go ahead something sorry. that I thought was striking in this game and and you see it even more from the way cleaning the glass does does their shot frequency stuff this is the rudy gobert effect memphis only took 21 percent of their shots in the restricted area 35 percent of their shots from floater range and this wasn't brandon clark drilling every floater known to man though he did hit one of them and that's what a, a great rim protector what a defensive player of the year center can do is they change higher value shots into lower value shots whether that is through deterrence or just or, or just old shot alteration i thought that you really saw that from gobert and also saw the difference not that tony uh, tony bradley's a big dude but he's not rudy gobert and like valanchunas felt so much more comfortable putting heat on it though valanchunas felt comfortable taking plenty of shots in front of rudy gobert maybe should have been less comfortable <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I, and Valanciunas, he needs to be out there now. He played 34 minutes. That's got to be close to the most that he's been playing for the Grizzlies. And they just need more offense on the floor. He is a good offensive center. But of course, uh, Gobert presents uh, some problems for just about anybody with his uh, crazy length. So, uh, you know, I think the other problem for Memphis, of course, was that uh, Gorgie Jang just didn't play well. I thought the communication with him defensively looked a little rusty. This is really the first significant playing time he's received. He'd been out of the rotation before this and so that was a, a little bit rough you know the, the what they tried to do was bring put Ja out there with the reserves and then basically bring in anybody else who could handle the ball because they don't have Tyus Jones either on the second unit and that worked a little bit better in the second half um but as the actually Memphis's reserves were able to do well when Gobert was off the floor but when they had Ja out there with Jang and Tolliver that didn't work quite as well particularly Jang so uh hopefully Jang can get back into it a little bit more give him that floor space spacing that he'd shown actually this year in some good moments with Minnesota another thing that was a positive takeaway for Memphis even though you know there's a pall over their bubble so far at 0-4 was uh, Grayson Allen really has been giving him some good minutes he has and Grayson Allen the biggest revelation to me in this one was just the speed of his release on some of these threes he was just popping it there was there were a couple where he had long enough to to really take his time but then there was one in particular I think it was in the fourth quarter where Mike Connolly was right on Grayson Allen he was recovering recovering back after a screen and Allen just fired it before Conley could even get there Grayson was 
7 to 10 from the field, 6 of 8 from 3 for 20 points in 27 minutes. And there were times, for sure, when Utah was attacking him, but Allen still yeah, provided Clark- Clarkson, something. Clarkson, uh, his eyes just about popped out of his head whenever he had Allen on him. Right. But at a certain point, especially with a shorthanded team, you just have to kind of take what you could get. They, the Grizzlies needed three-point shooting. They needed, whether whether he was taking them or they were just the threat to bring a defender off the floor, out onto the floor, they needed that in the worst way. And Grace Allen, if he could yeah. be a rotation player for them, doesn't have to be a starter. I mean, especially when they just paid Dylan Brooks. But he's looked good to me in the bubble coming back from injury. Yeah, six of eight from three, rest of team, five of 21. And Ja actually hit a couple. He toned down his three-point shooting from 10 attempts last last game to three and this one he actually hit two key oh cat's tail just hit, hit the microphone sorry about that uh he hit two key threes that brought them back into contact early in the third where it looked like uh, utah had the momentum of the game going their way before halftime and ja was able to change that and make it a game overall let's talk a little bit about uh, the night from utah we mentioned gobert joe ingles was awesome getting to his left hand particularly in that second quarter uh and memphis did a little bit better job taking away after he basically got like four pick and rolls with Gobert in a row where he either scored or set up Gobert for dunks uh another thing that I thought was really good from Utah was pressure from their guards including Donovan Mitchell whose defensive effort you know has not been what you hoped it would be coming out of Louisville although obviously everything else has gone right for him you know he Mike Conley they really actually pressured up and took the Grizz out of their offense late in the second quarter and got over screens really well like that was a big part of why Utah was able to get it going late in the seconds anything else stick out to you from utah's perspective yeah something that swung i thought momentum in the game was that early utah committed a ton of turnovers and some of that was like you know grabbing an offensive rebound uh, tony bradley did this a couple times grab an offensive rebound and then just throw it to memphis and there were also a couple of not they wouldn't be like we wouldn't necessarily be considered turnovers and i guess they technically would be where they tried to get a rebound threw it back in their offensive half got it right to like john Morant, and then he ran down the floor and so it was some things that seemed unsustainable from from that but eventually the turnover battle got pretty close 17 to 14 still in favor of Memphis but not as extreme I thought that seeing Rajon Tucker as the the guy on the floor largely in the second half replacing Emmanuel Moutier who yet again was bad like I thought that you know yeah, one of the- his one three that he took I think he's I don't know if he's even taken a two-pointer in the two games that I've watched but he just airballed that three he, he really the plus minus was ugly for him in the New Orleans game doesn't help that he doesn't get to play with Rudy Gobert like I got a lot of guys but yeah I mean they went to Tucker but it seemed pretty clear to me, Danny, that Tucker's a little limited from a shooting standpoint. Yes, very hesitant. And and a lot of times, especially with a younger with a younger player, hesitance is basically just as bad as Dutch as as missing it because the team's not going to defend you. And so considering the Jazz weren't really trying to find Tucker that much, you get a similar overall effect. But yeah, I thought Ingles played well. I thought Conley had some real nice moments in this one playing against his former team and got to the free throw line seven times. Utah shot 30 of 33 from the line in this game, another huge margin. So they plus 12. D- Dylan Brooks fouled out again. By Dylan the way. Brooks fouled out again. Um, and... I, yet again, I thought Royce O'Neal did a nice job on the defensive glass. Also had a big transition defense possession. Rudy Gobert got caught under the rim, so it was a five on four. He was basically between Kyle Anderson and Valanciunas, and I think it was about five point margin with, let's call it a minute to go. And O'Neal basically defended both guys at once, tipped the ball, and then that made it tip off of Kyle Anderson's hand. So Utah got out of it completely unscathed, and the game was basically over from that point, at least for, from our opinion. Uh, and so 
some disagreed. And, and I think another, this is not from Utah's perspective, but I wondered how Brandon Cork was going to fare in the starting lineup playing next to Valanciunas. And yeah, I was, which had been an efficient combination coming in. It had. But and as, mostly against reserve units. Right. As Kevin Pelton had brought up, not only was it against reserve units in his piece yesterday, but also there was some serious shooting luck involved and there wasn't as much shooting luck involved this time around. So I, I thought that Clark just, he didn't move the needle enough. And that is also one of the benefits of playing four out like Utah does a lot now is there wasn't really a way for both Clark and Valanciunas to make a difference on the basket and Brandon Clark can't guard Rudy Gobert so it's not like you could do something do something cute and try to have him around the basket anyway so it was it was a challenging matchup for Memphis we thought it would be then they gave it they gave it their all but they're just they're just too limited right now and that bodes exceedingly poorly for them in the rest of the bubble because at least in terms of the team's one loss records. Now, we don't know if all of their opponents are going to be going full steam because a lot of them are going to have their seeds settled, but this schedule gets rough. Yeah, it does. Uh, and they've got Boston, Toronto, and Milwaukee as their last three games. And those teams almost certainly will have their seating wrapped up as of that point. But even Milwaukee's bench guys have done a pretty good job this year. Toronto, too. And, you know, maybe less so with Boston. But I mean, they got to, I don't know if they can afford to go 0 and 8. And they obviously, you know, it seems like their dreams of the eighth seed are, are dying. Portland pulling out that win over Houston didn't help them either. You know, we'll have to check what the, the numbers are now uh, in a second here for utah the last point i wanted to make is that tonight was really what quinn snyder wants offensively they got up 45 three-pointers took very few mid-rangers and the ones that were were mostly floaters from conley uh, which is a, a good shot for him 18 of 45 from three and then the balance joe ingles leading them with 25 points conley gobert all all three of those guys over 20 nobody lower than the 15 of royce o'neill who again has been great it's seven three-point attempts for him and going for three of seven you know he's shooting it with no hesitation that's something that they really need from that spot with him replacing Bogdanovich so that's what Quintanar likes to do right it's a bunch of pick and rolls move the ball from side to side work later into the clock and put them in the blender as they like to say drive and kick drive and kick and then get those open three pointers and this was this is what Quintanar wants this team to look like offensively yeah and the ball movement especially at their best moments you know starting five and things like that I thought I thought it looked really good for the Jazz and especially yeah. Yeah, 25 assists on 38 field goals for the Jazz when they had really struggled to get many assists earlier in the bowl. And and there were times in this, especially in the fourth quarter, where Memphis tried to go to a switching system and they don't they don't have the experience and the yeah. discipline. To I thought do that it. actually looked good. I, I agree. thought that actually looked good for them. I thought it looked but. I thought it looked good. And there were some minutes there where Brandon Clark, I, I believe, was playing at center. They don't really have enough wings yeah. to make that work, but they were they were trying trying it out. I, but yeah. Utah, that, that was one th- one thing real quick there on the switching system that they Memphis did with Clark at center. Yo. Uh, Mitchell hit a tough three off the dribble in an ISO and Conley hit a tough three off the dribble in an ISO and they went away from it and yeah when you bring back Valanciunas and Jai you have to do that but that's one of those things where I think the process was good there and just Utah hit tough shots like I would try to go back to that especially on that second group that struggled with Memphis uh, but sorry sorry I interrupted you but while we were on the subject I want to get that yeah. point in and I don't remember where I was going so it's okay all right well that well that's bad maybe uh I apologize I guess maybe we can just shift to the overall uh situation now here for Utah and Memphis in the West, uh, looking at the 538 odds. And if we look at their ELO forecast, they've still got the Grizz 
with a 44% chance of making the playoffs. It looks like, especially with the Spurs losing to the Nuggets today, you're down to Grizz, Blazers, Pels fighting for those two eight and nine spots. And the Blazers have looked really good. They've beaten some tough teams. They got more tough teams coming up, of course. But the the Grizz only have a one-game lead over the Blazers and they still have a two and a half game lead over the Pels but the Pels of course don't play another over 500 team and the Grizz don't play another under 500 team so I mean yeah I really think that if the Grizz go 0 and 8 here with the as well as the Blazers are playing as easy as the Pels schedule is I think they got a pretty good chance of missing it they got to get a couple of wins here they do and I I'm concerned about the specific matchups too like for example like Toronto Boston Milwaukee in particular OKC is going to be trying we know we know that that's that's memphis's next game those teams even if they're not all the way at it they're really talented defenses and so if memphis stagnates i think they can you know they can beat good teams but they can also lose to almost anybody and we've already seen that in the bubble to an extent i mean losing the game to the spurs in particular was frustrating for me from their perspective so yeah memphis they have a lot and remember if they get if they fall to the nine memphis isn't going through because they're they're not good enough at this juncture to beat to beat somebody twice so they i mean yeah it's better to be ninth than 10th but it's not that much better for the for their purposes if the goal is to make it into the playoffs so we'll see i'm you know you want you want everybody to succeed but at the same point it would be more it'd be more interesting if it were teams that were closer to complete and for utah this win puts them into the four seed but denver winning today puts denver a firm two games ahead of utah for the three and then you really uh with dallas now four games behind everyone else in the loss column you've got a huge bunch between the jazz rockets and thunder all with 25 losses right now utah has the most wins of that group so they sit in the four seed for now oklahoma city playing the lakers as we record this man it is crazy to think that i've been working with helix sleep since 2015 and i think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners if you've never heard it before that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom and there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all they found the one formula the one mattress that was going to work for everyone my then girlfriend now wife and i ordered that mattress we ended up having to return it because hey guess what not everyone is the same and then she did some more research and found he looked sleep we took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Every sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences. Hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz. Find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. And it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house 
else. Get that 100-night trial. They're 10 to 15-year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to remember slash capspace. We talk about it all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside and things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us anyone who's seen our youtube videos knows that i don't wear formal stuff all the time so when it's time to dress up rather than dress down i highly recommend inochino they were the official outfitter of my wedding i got my tux from there all my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well, I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all of my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets. 
and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. I'm honored to bring on the first active NBA player to appear on the Dunk Don podcast. So we've had a, a number of retired players, but Damari Carroll of the Houston Rockets is the first to, to join us from the bubble. How are you doing, Damari? What's going on, brother? How are you doing? Doing really well. So I, I wanted to start just by talking about the Houston Rockets and the system that you've joined there because they've been playing this small ball spread the floor, switch everything, uh, philosophy. Uh, and, you know, many commentators, not a surprise, who are more traditionalists with basketball, have said, oh, you know, you can't win with that. You can't w- win a championship playing that way. You're not going to have success. What's your reaction when you hear stuff uh, uh, like that, since this is, you know, this is a team that you wanted to join playing that system? Um, I really think it's kind of comical because at the end of the day, uh, I think the NBA basketball in general has shifted it shifted more to a three-point uh, game and a small ball game. And I think, you know, Golden State will be kind of, you know, responsible of, of that. Um, and I think, you know, Coach Mike D'Antoni just got the courage now to just say, hey, we're going to try it and we're going to go really small. And, you know, uh, Golden State went small by putting Draymond at the five and maybe KD at the four, but it's still kind of big. But uh us Houston, we just said, hey, we're going to go really small. And I think I told the guys like six, seven, uh, the stars in the starting lineup. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, it's had some success so far. You guys beat Milwaukee the other day. I, I watched that game and I was just, I was shocked by the way that game went up. You know, you guys tied the NBA record with 61 three point attempts in that game. But the crazy thing to me was just the way that Milwaukee was defending. I don't think I've ever seen a team defend quite that way because I'm guessing, right? That like when you're guarding the strong side corner, like what's the first thing that they tell you if you're guarding the strong side corner? It's don't help out the strong side corner, right? Yeah, you got to stay at home. And I think uh, you know our biggest thing with that game was we we really uh, attacked it whichever strong side corner Brook Lopez is at, and it allowed guys like PJ Tucker and Jeff Green to be wide open and uh, shoot majority of the threes. And because uh, you know when you're a big man, you used to you know going in the paint and protecting the goal, so. I think that was our advantage is we had number smalls out on the court and, you know, we was bringing the big guy in with James Harden, you know, him getting to the lane and Russell Westbrook. It, it allowed guys like PJ Tucker and Jeff Green to have easy, easy wide open point blank threes. Yeah. I mean, I think like in the third quarter, you guys were like six of 10 just on corner threes. You shot 26 for the game, which is the highest number I can ever remember seeing in a game. So was that, I mean, I noticed that when the game was going on, that it seemed like you were trying to get to the same side as as whoever their rim protector was and then drive at him and then just throw it to the corner. Was that something that you guys were talking about during the game that you are going to emphasize? Yeah, I think that was our biggest key was uh, doing that, you know, just trying to attack, get into the lane and bring the big the big guy over to help and then just, you know, throw it out and trust your role players. And I think that's what James Harden and Russell Westbrook really try to do is, you know, they trust your role players and I think that's going to be key especially trying to make a run in this bubble. Yeah, I mean, like P.J. Tucker shoots it well in the corner three. Jeff Green, I think he, he might have had like three of them in that quarter. So, yeah, that was that was really fascinating to see that strategic dilemma kind of play out 
on the floor. So is there anything else that like Houston has really been focusing on in your preparation as you just, I mean, in this unique situation in the bubble that has kind of been, you know, different from what you would normally be having to do? Oh, uh, you know, this, the, the bubble is more like, um, it's more AAU style, uh, without the fans, you know, that has a, that plays a big part on a lot of different dimensions in the game. It's, uh, from personnel to, on the court, you know, you know, some guys, I think it, it's taking a lot of pressure off some guys, you know, who, who usually don't perform well with big crowds, you know, and they playing at a high level. So I think it, it got its pros and it got its cons, but at the same time, uh, we just trying to take advantage of it and treat it like a style and try to be the fastest team getting up and down, trying to tire the, the, the all the teams out and hopefully the small ball can tire all these big guys out. <laughs> you know, who's not used to getting up and down the court like that. Yeah, Houston, with Russell Westbrook now, they've really changed, it, it seems like, with the, the pace that they play at compared to last year with uh, with Chris Paul. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your career. You're someone I, I've followed with a lot of fascination, actually, because you kind of started your career as an inside player in college, you know, offensive rebound or a, a lot of energy stuff, and then you shift to Atlanta and – all of a sudden, you're shooting threes. You're playing the three. They've got this system where they're moving the ball a lot, taking a lot of threes. So can you take me through how you made that transition from an inside player to more of a guy who shoots threes but taking on that role, that really the three and D role that's become so in demand in the league? Uh, I think it all started back when, uh, you know, when I got drafted coming out of college, I was really labeled as a tweener. Yeah. I was labeled as a guy, you know, really not a position you just was in. You know, you could play inside. Some you could guard guys outside, but I really couldn't shoot the outside. But I think through my transition uh, of going to team to team and getting waved and getting picked up, I think when I was getting ready to go to Utah, my agent kind of just sent me down, Mark Ballerstein, and he really basically just told me, um, "Damar, we just got you got to get on this three ball, and you got to be able to shoot the ball. You know, you need to shoot two thousand, three thousand. Doesn't matter how many shots you shoot." a day in the summer, you got to get three ball if you want to continue your NBA career. And, I, you know, to this day, me and my agent are, like, real close because we got that understanding and we're realists. And he told me that. And I remember being in L.A., working out every day, just working on my three ball. I haven't even got picked up by a team. And then a GM by the name Kevin O'Connor flew in uh, just to watch me, you know, watch me practice. And he came in, and I think the season almost pretty much started. And he watched me, and, he, and that's when I shot the ball really well. And he brought me into Utah, and I kind of, you know, I just kind of kept, you know, uh, shooting the three ball and kept trying to get better and better each day. And uh, and now I realize that it really helped me now because back then I couldn't shoot the ball. But now, you know, I think it's just repetition, a lot of repetition. And then it's also a little bit of confidence. It's not only physical, it's mental. So uh, I think me just having the confidence now to be able to shoot the three ball has really helped my career. So do you think that you kind of needed that of like bouncing around and, you know, just not being signed until right before the season but to say, all right, no, I really, this is what I really have to work on if I'm going to survive in this league? Yeah, it's a blessing in disguise. That's how I look at it. Uh, my career has been all, you know, it's been, uh, you know, I've been on a high and then I go back on the low and then I go on a high. So at the end of the day, I understand that I just got to keep trying to get better and keep, you know, Different parts of my career at different ages, I got to know, 
and I got to be real with myself and know what I can can do and can contribute. And I think the three ball was the thing that I knew I had to really figure it out, and I think I did. Yeah, so as a veteran now, you've been through that experience. Do you try to impart that to some of the young guys on the teams that you're on where they kind of are struggling, they're not able to do the things that they always did at the lower levels? Do you try to talk to them about like, hey, this is what you have to do to find a role, really be realistic with who you're going to be in this league? Yeah, yeah, that's my biggest thing. Whenever I talk to my young guys, and it doesn't matter if I'm, I'm, I'm playing or if I'm on the bench or, you know, like when I was with the Spurs, you know, I talked to guys like DeJounte Murray all the time, Money Walker, Derek White, those were like my young guys. And, you know, I was just telling them being realistic with themselves and, you know, just trying to carve out a role in this league. And once you do that, you know, you get established, you know, you get more opportunities, even when things are not going right your way. Because, you know, when I was in Toronto, um, I was injured the whole two years I was there. Yeah. It was very misfortunate, but at the end of the day, um, you know, Messiah still gave me a, a deal of my lifetime to change my life. So I'm always thankful for what he's done for me and my family. Uh, but at, it, it was a basketball was business. So at that time, he traded me and he traded me to, he asked me who I want to be traded to. He was the Phoenix of Brooklyn and they was at the bottom of the league. And I, I chose Brooklyn because I knew Kenny Atkinson. He was with me in Atlanta. And I just went there and I went to work and basically I kind of helped my career again and that allowed me to sign with San Antonio Spurs. And I just tell these guys, man, you, you guys just be real with yourself. And although sometimes you be low in your career, sometimes you still always, there's always another opportunity and you just got to always just get ready for that next opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Mark Barlstein and that conversation you had with him. Is it hard? for NBA players, particularly young NBA players, to find someone who is going to actually be real with them about what they need to do, tell them maybe stuff that they don't want to hear? Yeah, that's, I think that's the key. And that's, I think that's what distinguished Mark Bartlestein from other agents. I think uh, him being realistic with his players, um, you know, talking to them, uh, communicating with them on a high level, letting them know that, hey, it's no opportunity for you right now in the NBA. Maybe you have to go overseas. Or, hey, you need to do this and focus on this in order to continue to be in this league. Like, those are the conversations a lot of agents are not having with their guys. And I think that's what distinguishes Mark from being, from me personally, and I'm biased, being the best agent in the, in the business right now. Yeah, he gets a lot of positive pub. Jared Dudley is, is always saying that too. I, I did do a breakdown of like, all the contracts that he's signed guys to two, to, and I, I'm still in the midst of doing agent rankings, but he's he's up at the top. It seems like he he does a nice job for everyone. So, uh, um, let me ask you this: You mentioned the transition to Brooklyn, going back to to Kenny Atkinson, who you're with in Atlanta uh, last season. There was something that really just stuck out in the stat sheet to me that was just a real surprise. I wanted to ask you about it. So. Through most of your career, you know, if you compare like the number of free throw attempts you took to the number of field goals, it's usually pretty much around the league average. Last year, that skyrocketed up. You had one of the highest rates of drawing fouls among wing players. Did you make a concerted effort to do that more last year? Because it was just, it's not something that you see often for a guy, you know, as well established in his career to have a change like that. Yeah, I think I made a concerted effort because I realized, uh, I think my biggest thing was, Damari, you got to figure out how to still, you know, get the ball in the basket and, you know, still don't be a liability on the offensive end. So you have to, we know you can shoot the three, but now 
you know, guys are running off at you. And, you know, the, when you get in the lane, what, what, what are you going to do? Are you going to be able, you got to be able to finish at a high level and play above the rim, which, <laughs> you know, I'm a realist. I'm, I'm not a high <laughs> above the rim type player. So I said, I got to figure out how I can draw fouls and get to the free throw line and still be able to, you know, to score those 10 to 12 points that I've been averaging my whole career. And, uh, I made a conscious effort of just, you know, studying certain players and seeing little things that they were doing. That they was drawing fouls like DeMar DeRozan, Kyle Lowry, even, you know, James, um, you know, just, you know, inviting the contact and then, you know, using your body, you know, to kind of, you know, draw the foul. And I feel like that's what I really made an effort with. And, uh, and I just used to do the numbers in my head. Like, you know, DeMar, you go in there, you, you go in there, you hit a couple threes, you get a couple free throws, you know, you still that same player that you was when you was hitting, knocking down five, six, seven threes. So. I just gotta. I just had to make sure I changed my game a little bit, especially the older I got. Yeah, I mean, I, I noticed that as I was watching some film of you last year that you know, you put the ball on the floor on a closeout, maybe, and you know the guy will just like put his forearm on you a little bit, and so you know you react, you take that take that shot that maybe you know you wouldn't take if you didn't feel the contact, and, and you draw the foul. I mean, it's it's something you see a lot of the stars in the league doing. You don't see that as much from role players but it's uh did you actually practice that or did you just decide one day you're gonna do it no i actually practiced uh yeah. playing one-on-one playing two-on-two and three-on-three i just said let me start because the biggest thing about drawing fouls is you gotta you can't be afraid of looking uh crazy when you draw the foul because sometimes they might call <laughs> it sometimes they might not but i feel like two my biggest thing is i, I had to you know i really dissected it and i dissected it in different formats and different fashions uh, like one, like I said before, you gotta look, be able to accept looking crazy if you do go in there and, you, and they don't call a foul and you look really crazy. Two, you know, when you draw the foul, you know, you gotta be able to draw it. And then if coach takes you out, you gotta be okay with that too. Yeah. So, um, and then with all that saying is, you know, my third thing I, I was saying is, you know, the older you get, you have this thing that I feel like you built this relationship over the years and 10, 12 years in the league with the refs that they know who you are and they know your game a little bit. So they know the things that you do. So if you do go in there and the refs see you drawing this foul and he's seen it all over the years then and he know who you are and maybe he will give you this call because, you know, you, you've been in this league and you pay your dues. But, you know, some of the young guys still going there and they get knocked down and they don't even get the fouls. But I think that's just having a relationship you know, and being in the league and establishing yourself as a good player in the league. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. But hey, I mean, if that's if that's how they're going to call it now with the contact on the perimeter and hand checking, like why not take advantage, right? If they if if people don't want the whistle to blow, then they shouldn't file you, right? Exactly, exactly. So that's the key, man. You just gotta try to play without you know putting your hand on the defender, and uh, and if you're gonna put your hand on the defender, you're gonna draw fouls all day. So I got a lot more I wanted to ask you uh, about your career coming up here but i know one of the reasons you wanted to come on this show is to give a, a little bit more visibility to uh the carroll family foundation uh that you founded uh it's uh raising awareness funds and education for pediatric liver disease and disorders and so i just wanted to hear the story a little bit behind why you decided to start that foundation and what y'all are doing uh yeah uh cff is the Carroll family foundation uh that's my foundation that i started you know, some years ago, uh, basically to bring awareness to pediatric liver disease, like you stated. Um, 
And the biggest key for that is really close to my heart because I'm an advocate for the liver disease. You know, I was diagnosed with a liver uh, condition when I was in college my junior year. Uh, and I think, you know, I always, I really didn't think where I'd be where I'm at right now. Yeah. So, you know, after, you know, visiting specialists, you know, being at the Mayo Clinic, donating a lot of money and uh, just trying to help this thing going to different hospitals. I'm just trying to encourage kids and families and parents to let them know that maybe one day you can't have a kid that could be a Demari Carroll who do have liver disease, you know, and you just got to do the right things. You know, you got to have a healthy uh, lifestyle, eating the right things, doing the right things and taking care of your body. Because a lot of people don't understand the liver because the liver is never talked about. You always hear about the heart. You always hear about the kidney, but you never hear about the liver. And it's, you know, it's one of the biggest organs in your body. And uh, I feel like, you know, it's my job and my duty to basically bring awareness to it and let everybody know that, you know, you still can have a successful life with a liver disease. Well, thanks. That, that sounds like a, a great endeavor. And you can find out more about that at the Carroll Family Foundation dot org. We'll put a link to that in the show notes uh, as well if you want to check it out. So you've played with a number of great organizations now. A- Atlanta, they really had a, a lot of development. I used to call them Hawks University when you guys were there because they developed uh, all these players like, like you and Kent Bazemore and Jeff Jeff Teague. Uh, Toronto might be one of the best organizations in the league. Brooklyn, San Antonio, now Houston. How would you compare some of those organizations and their approaches? Uh, compare, compare. Uh, Atlanta, I would say, was definitely be the forefront of uh, the best organization I've been a part. Uh, at that time, I think uh, Coach Mike Budenholzer did a good job of establishing a culture. Uh, Danny Ferry, he did a good job establishing the culture and, and bringing in guys that fit, you know, their culture and what they wanted. You know, they didn't go for, like, the big, big superstars. They went for guys that they felt like that they can bring in and had high character. They're going to do the things the right way. And I think Coach Bud's done the same thing he's done in Milwaukee. And, you know, he, he, uh, superstars just fell in his lap with Giannis Island Cooper. So, and, uh, but at the same, I think Atlanta was, you know, top of that. Uh, Brooklyn was very good to me, you know, because it was basically the same Atlanta, but more youth. It was yeah. more younger. Uh, you know, we had D'Angelo Cares, all those. Toronto was actually a good organization too. But at the same time, you know, I was injured a lot there. So, you know, that had a lot to do with my mental. So, but at the same time, the organization was still a good organization. But, um, I think out of my career, those the top three organizations I've been a part in, uh, from top to bottom, they've been great from the GM to the head coach to, you know, just being around all the players. They really been, uh, key in, uh, on my career and my life as a man. Yeah, and it, it seems like those are some really good player development. They really focus a lot on player health as well, those three organizations. So um, San Antonio, you signed there this offseason. You got a nice deal. I, I I thought certainly you know you had a good season in Brooklyn last year. I thought you were going to be able to contribute. They paid you a contract that indicated they probably expected that they were going to play you. But, you know, it didn't really work out there. You weren't in the rotation. So how are you able to manage that situation as a veteran when, you know, the last seven years you've really been in the rotation? Uh, it was tough. It was definitely tough. Um, you know, it was, I really didn't get a complete uh, explanation of why, I, you know, understanding. But, you know, at the same time, I still had to be a professional. I still had to come in and do my work, you know, get my work done afterwards. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, Coach Pop, you know, he's a Hall of Fame coach. He's always, 
he was always good. You know, I sat down and had good talks with him. But, you know, as far as basketball, it just didn't work out. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, that taught me, too, you know, how to help my mentor in the same standpoint that I still got to continue to just keep grinding and keep doing the things that I've been doing my whole career. And, you know, another opportunity will come. You know, um, I end up signing with Houston. Uh, right now, unfortunately, I ain't in the rotation. You know, I had a couple of injuries during this, especially during this training camp coming back. Just pulled a little hamstring. But at the end of the day, man, I'm still fortunate. And I'm pretty sure another opportunity will come. I just got to keep chipping away and be ready whenever the opportunity will come. Yeah, it seems like San Antonio, at least, you know, because you're under contract for there uh, for another year. You know, a lot of times if you have a salary, they may be like, okay, well, we'll keep him here so, you know, we can use his salary in a trade or something like that. But they actually, they bought you out pretty early on. So it seemed like they did right by you, at least if you weren't going to be playing there. Yeah, yeah. I think that's just the relationship uh, my agent, Mark Bartison, had with him. He, uh, just him being known around the league and, you know, him and Pop having a good relationship. I felt like they felt that, you know, especially, you know, me being a veteran, and at 33, 34 years old, I still want to be able to play this game until I can't play it no more. They wanted to give me an opportunity to go somewhere else and uh, play. And so, you know, I, I chose, I had a couple of teams, uh, but I chose Houston, you know, just because of the situation. Uh, they get up and down. And I really, you know, thought I could get in the rotation and really help by shooting three and helping with my defense. But, uh, you know, joining Houston, Especially joining the, the hardest thing in the NBA is joining good teams and, uh, towards the end of the season. Yeah. It really can affect, you know, it don't give a coach who don't know you enough time to really analyze you and see what you can contribute and, and mess up his rotation because at the end of the day, you know, they was already rolling when I got here. So, you know, adding me, he had to try to figure out how he could put me in there and he really didn't want to try to mess up the rotation, but. At the end of the day, I just still got to be ready because you never know what might happen. You know, injuries happen on the daily, and I just got to be ready to take advantage of my opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one question I wanted to ask you is, you know, you you obviously you're a professional. You, you're not going to like you know cause problems in the organization because you're not playing or something like that. But are you? Do you try to have conversations with the coaching staff of like, hey, you know what? Like, I'm willing to accept my role, but. I also would like to play, you know, is there anything that you would like to see me be doing better or, you know, what should my expectations be going forward? Do you try to have those conversations or are you just kind of just waiting to see what happens and if your turn comes? No, see, my, you know, I'm I'm big on, uh, you know, analyzing the situation and not trying to step on toes. Yeah. Uh, but I do. I'm very, I'm very uh, vocal person, so I usually go to coaches. And I'd be like, hey, you know what it is. But I go to assistant coaches and I try to talk to them and see before going to the head coach. Because, you know, when you win and you don't want to be that guy that always goes to coach and say, hey, why am I? So I try to really analyze the situation. We're winning. We're a pretty good team right now. So um, right now I'm just trying to stay in the gym and do my part. And, uh, you know, when my opportunity comes, if it does come, I'm ready to go. And if it doesn't, hey, I just got to get ready for going to free agent and go to another team. And I could start from the beginning, which makes it more easier for a team to value me rather than going at the end of the season. Yeah, I definitely hope you do get a chance because I think your skill set does fit in pretty well with what Houston is doing. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your season to talk to us. Don't forget, again, check out Damari's foundation, the Carroll Family 
Foundation as well. If you wanted to contribute or learn more about uh, pediatric liver disease and disorder, this is a great conversation. We'd love to have you back at, at some point in the future. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you for y'all having Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 